Let's just uh, bow our hearts, shall we? Father, we do thank you for your word, Lord, that whatever questions we have, Lord, your word contains the answers. Lord, whatever situation or circumstance we face, Lord, your word contains the answer. And Father, we thank you that looking into your word is like looking into a mirror. Lord, we just see a reflection of what we are truly like, but Lord, also what you are truly like. Lord, just speak to us now as we just turn to your word, as we just consider the things that your Holy Spirit has given us, Lord, as food to edify us and encourage us. We just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we were going to be starting a, a, a topic, or, sorry, a verse-by-verse study um, this morning, but uh, I feel that we should maybe just delay that for a week or two. And I wanted to just look this morning at the subject of dedication. We've had a number of dedications. We've been blessed as a fellowship to be able to do that. Um, and I thought it would be just good this morning to just actually look at uh, where this idea comes from in Scripture. And also, really, not just so much so that we can tick a box and go, oh yeah, I understand it, but so that we can be challenged uh, this morning ourselves um, to the point of rededication and seeing our own lives in the the context here as well. So, um, first of all, if you want to just turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, of course, is the the place where we have this account of this family. Uh, We read in verse 1 of 1 Samuel, now there was a certain man of Ramathane Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zup, and an Ephraite. Okay, so um, this is uh, by location, not by birth. He's just in the area um, now. But we're told the verse two that he had two wives. Now again, this is. Not God's ideal, not God's plan, uh, but we see a number of this, these kind of situations occur in the Old Testament. Of course, God's plan was always for one man, one woman. Uh, and the reason for that is because marriage itself was to symbolize Christ in the church. Paul tells us that in uh, the New Testament in the book of Ephesians, that marriage is all about depicting, as so many other things in Scripture do, God's bigger picture, God's big plan. Uh, And marriage is something that is sacred, it is very special, but the reason it's so special is because it speaks of Christ and the church. But nevertheless, this man had two wives, and uh, obviously a recipe for disaster. Uh, And we read uh, that the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was uh, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah didn't. Obviously, you can imagine there's going to be friction in this household. And we're told, and this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Now, after the children of Israel had come into the promised land, the first place that the tabernacle effectively comes to to rest is this place of Shiloh. Later, the tabernacle, or uh, as it was with the Ark of the Covenant, all these kind of things, is moved by David to Jerusalem. And the, the tabernacle then resides in Jerusalem until the time later Solomon would then build the temple. And we told him the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, the priests of the Lord were there. Now these two individuals are very bad characters and we read more about them later in uh, the book of Samuel. But uh, verse 4, and when the time was come that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penani his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. Now we don't know how many children she had. I'm not sure we told the exact number, but she has sons and she has daughters. 
But unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion. And we're told for he loved Hannah. You can imagine the kind of friction that's going on here. You know, obviously, he has seemingly stronger feelings for this one wife, Hannah, than he does for the other one. But his other wife has born him children. Of course, at that time in that culture, children were a, a really big deal. I mean, they still are today, but even more so possibly in that time from a cultural and uh, another perspective. Uh, but the Lord, we're told, had shut up her womb. And her adversary also, we give it very clearly in Scripture, the kind of friction that's going on here, provoked a sore to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband to her, uh, seemingly possibly a little bit lacking tact here, Hannah, why weepest thou and why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? Possibly not uh, the best thing he could have said. Uh, I'm suggesting that he didn't really understand his wife all that well uh, with such a comment. Um, But basically saying, look, you've got me, baby. (laughs) What else could you really want? Um, So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had uh, drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon the seat by the post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul. And notice what she does. You know, yes, she's upset about this, but she goes to the Lord. And we thought, and she prayed unto the Lord and wept a sore. That, that's the place to go when we're faced with challenges, when we're faced with things that seem unfair. We should go to the Lord. And notice what she does here. She vows a vow unto the Lord. And I don't think this, this lady is doing this flippantly. I don't think it's just a casual thing. We've been told that she's been going up year after year, but it's on this occasion. That, that implies to me, at least, that she's thought this through. Now, we're told, Solomon tells us, it's better not to vow than to vow and not keep your vow. Don't go make a promise to God and then break that promise. There's a number of portions, certainly in the Torah, that speak about making vows and the seriousness of that. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. I mean, she, even in that title, she's recognizing that this is a, a God, not just that deals with you know, trivial things in life, but this is a God that's in complete control of the universe. This is the Lord of hosts, of the heavenly hosts. That, that's the implication here. Of all the creatures before the throne. Now, this is early on in scripture we haven't yet got to the time when isaiah and ezekiel and others will see their visions of heaven but there was an understanding of the heavenly realm you know even way back to the garden of eden when adam and eve were cast out of the garden of eden the lord placed these cherubim to guard the way these mighty angels to stop man getting back in and taking of the tree of life in our unfallen state. So she's praying to the Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thy handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, that I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. And there shall no razor come upon his head. Now what she's speaking there is this vow of a Nazarite's Um, that we read of in Leviticus, um, where certain individuals could make a vow for a certain number of days 
And one of the, the things typically they would do is not shave during that time, not to cut their hair during that time. They would drink no strong drink during that period of time. It would be a time of dedication to the Lord, to focus on the Lord. It's similar in a sense today when people fast. It's putting away everything that you would naturally do, the normal things. It's separating yourself from the world. Um, when you took this vow of Nazarite, you weren't allowed to touch a dead body, even if it was a relative and so on. Um, we're not allowed to be defiled in any way. But for some individuals, and Samson is a good example, this vow was something that was for life. And this is what Hannah is saying here, that she's committing to the Lord that if she were to be given a child, that he would be given to the Lord. And this vow of Nazarite would apply to his life all his days. And she says, no razor should come upon his head. And it, should come, it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. So he's obviously a distance away, and he's looking, and he sees her praying in the tabernacle. And he says, now Hannah, she spoke in her heart only, and her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. You know what it's like sometimes you're praying, and you, sometimes it, it's helpful to articulate with your lips, but you're not necessarily speaking out loud. And she's praying. But we're told, therefore, Eli thought that she'd been drunk, and he just assumes that this woman is drunk. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. This woman seems to be somewhat challenged by men in her life that don't understand, doesn't she? Verse 15, And Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thy handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Eli thinks in his heart, oops, put my foot in it there, didn't I? Which he did, really. But then it says, Eli said, go in peace, and the, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. Now, again, I don't think this is just a trying to get out of jail card for Eli just trying to cover the, the little uh, faux pas. Uh, I, I genuinely think that when he responds in this way, he was sincere in saying and praying. I really then sincerely pray that God would grant you your request. Verse 18, and she said, let thy handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went away and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it a great thing when we can go to God and we can pray and we can leave the burden as it were at the cross rather than have to carry it with us wherever we go? You know, there's a lot of lessons that we can draw from this woman's life, but this is one of the greatest. That she comes to the Lord, she prays in faith, and then she walks away with her head lifted high, trusting in God. Verse 19, and they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returning came to their house and to Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass that when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son and called his name Samuel saying because I have asked him of the Lord. And the man Elkanah and his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord, and there abide forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, well, okay, do what seems good, tarry until you've weaned him, only the Lord establish his word, 
interesting here that we see a kind of a godly side of, of Elkanah coming through, saying, okay, well, if you've made this commitment to God, then you do what you have promised to God, and may the Lord's word be established here. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her and with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. And they slew the bullock and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as thy soul livest, uh, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord. And for this child I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. I mean, the joy in her heart as she, she makes that statement that God is faithful, that God answered my prayer. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He should be lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. I, I think that's a reference there to, to Eli, worshipping, as this lady is bringing and making good on her promise, on her vow. But chapter 2 we read, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies. Because I rejoice in thy salvation. I mean, she's praising God now because she feels like she's been vindicated from this reproach that was upon her life for not having children. And she says in verse 2, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. I just want to highlight here, this isn't just something she's doing at this stage. This has been her heart, I believe, through the whole of this time. Now she's expressing her belief and confidence, but I think you see that confidence shown way back when she leaves after that prayer with her head lifted high. But here it's just coming out what was already in her heart. Verse 3 says, Talk no more so exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. Again, she's obviously thinking about this relationship with her adversary, Elkanah's other wife, Benaniah. And she's saying, you know, God looks at Actions. God looks at the heart. God looks at all these things. And she knows that she's justified now. And in verse 4 says, The bowels of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. Yeah, what a lovely picture. I mean, this is the gospel here, isn't it? That we who were outcasts, we who were downtrodden, we who were despised, we who had no strength have been set upon our feet. We've had a new song. In our mouths, song of praise to our God. We stand now on a rock. This this whole song of praise from from Hannah here is really just the gospel concealed in the Old Testament. Verse 5, They that were full of hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased, so that the barren has borne seven, and she that has many children is waxed feeble been a real turning around of the situation. The Lord kills and makes alive and brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises up the poor out of the dust 
and lifts up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. I mean, again, the gospel here, because we, uh, uh, verse 8, it speaks of us, the poor. We were in the dust. You know, as, as Galatians, uh, is it Galatians tells us or Ephesians? Um, I think it's uh, Galatians, isn't it? I think. Um, it just, just speaks about us being outcasts. We, we were destitute. We were cast off. But God has rescued us. You know, and we have been given this position now and this throne of glory. We will sit on thrones, we've been told. We've told that we're going to be given a position of authority, even so that we will judge angels. The church will judge angels. I believe that's a reference to the, the fallen angels specifically. Verse 9 And he will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. Interesting, isn't it? The world bases everything that they do, everything they believe on having strength, having ability, having power. It's not about that at all. It's about having God. about being on God's side. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces out of heaven. Shall he thunder upon them? The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. And he shall give strength unto his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's a direct reference there to the Messiah. What a all-encompassing statement that is. Speaking of God, the way he's going to bring down the proud, the haughty, and raise up those that are humble. The way that the meek will inherit this earth. And this is before so many of those prophecies that come later that give us understanding of those things. Verse 11, and Elkanah went to Ramah to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. We mentioned this a moment ago. They knew not the Lord, and the priest's custom uh, with the people was that the, when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant came, and while the flesh was in seething, with the flesh shook uh, the three teeth in his hand, and he struck in the pan, or the kettle, or the cauldron, or the pot, all that the flesh shook brought up, the priest took for himself. So basically, people were bringing offerings and they're just taking the best of what they, they, they can get for themselves. They're not taking this seriously. And we're told, uh, so they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. Um, you see a real contrast start to build now between these two um, sons of Eli and obviously Samuel as he starts to grow. Also, um, before they burnt the fat, the priest's servants came and said to the man that sacrificed, give flesh to roast for the priest, um, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee but raw. So again, they're just trying to get, extract more from people that are bringing offerings and saying, you've got to give you something else. Isn't it a little bit like the the false apostate church today? They just try and take from people. They try and take things that aren't theirs. It's no different than this situation. But let's just, just jump on because it gets, we're just it's speaking about them. Um, but verse 18 we read, But Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child, girded with the linen ephod. And then we're told, Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. And they went unto their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters. 
and the child of Samuel grew before the Lord. And the story, the account goes on from there. What a lovely testimony of God's faithfulness, of somebody pleading to God but trusting God. And then God providing that which seemed impossible. We sung this morning about a God that can do impossible things. You know, when we give to God the things that are most precious to us, we don't lose them. In actual fact, we we gain them. Just turn with me briefly, if you would, to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verses 24 through to 27, we read, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Samuel didn't object. He didn't complain. There's no record that he ever tried to move out of the ministry. In fact, we see him being a really faithful servant of God all his days, one of the greatest leaders of the nation. But it was a life of sacrifice. Samuel had to give up all sorts of things in obedience. And we're told here, again, we sang that song, that we shall not give that which costs us nothing, based upon the words of David. You know, and the theme this morning is dedication. As Hannah dedicated Samuel. It wasn't a trivial thing. It was a lifelong commitment. We told if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There is a cost to following Christ. It will cost everything that we have, everything that we know, as we go through this process of being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. We're told, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And isn't that true? You know, I'm sure that many of you are familiar with that great quote by, um, I think it's Jim Elliott, if I'm uh, not mistaken, one of the missionaries to the Orker Indians. And he said, he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You know, and in that act, act of dedication this morning for Tim and for Kat, bringing those children and dedicating to the Lord, they're not giving them away. They're doing the most sensible thing. They're placing them in trust with one who cannot lose them. You know, and whatever it is the Lord is calling us to give, give it over to the Lord. Whether it's thoughts, emotions, relationships, Whatever burdens we carry, give it over to the Lord. Give it all over to him. Don't try and keep those things for yourself. They won't benefit you. You can't deal with them anyway. There is one other account of dedication in Scripture we will quickly just have a look at in closing. Uh, and it's one that most people miss. Would you turn with me to the book of Judges? It's sadly one that's often misunderstood and uh, very strange uh, interpretations are placed on this. It starts at the beginning of chapter 11. By this, We introduce this man, Jephthah the Gileadite. And we're given this statement, was a mighty man of valor. But we're told he was a son of a harlot, and Gilead begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew, and they thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. So, Another family with problems, with friction and so on. This individual, Jephthah, then kind of flees. We're told in verse 4, 
in the process of time, it came to pass in the process of time, the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And I'm going to cut a long story short, rather than reading all of this, you can by all means please read it, it's, it's scripture, it's beneficial. But we find that they can't find anybody to help them fight against the children of Ammon. And so eventually, they appeal to Jephthah to come and help them. So we're going to pick up from verse 12. And Jephthah sent messages unto the king of the children of Ammon, saying, What hast thou to do with me, that thou art come against me to fight in my land? And the king of the children of Ammon answered unto the messengers of Jephthah, saying, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, from Arnon even unto Jabuk and unto Jordan. It's the same argument that we see going on in the Middle East today. Whose land is it? Well, God was very specific about whose land was whose. You know, the children of Ammon, the Ammonites, uh, they were the descendants of Lot. Lot had two children through his daughters, Ammon and Moab. And both of those are given portions of land that God tells Israel will not be theirs. And yet there's this claim here that Israel had taken land that wasn't theirs. Same as we see on the news today. It's God that had divided and apportioned the land. Verse 13, And the king of the children of Ammon answered unto the messages of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came out of Egypt, from Arnon even unto Jabuk, unto Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands again peaceably. It's a, a threat basically here. And Jephthah sent messages again unto the, the king of the children of Ammon, and said unto him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel took not away the land of Moab, nor the land of the children of Ammon. But when Israel came up from Egypt and walked through the wilderness unto the Red Sea and came to Gadesh, then Israel sent messages unto the king of Eden, saying, Let me, I pray thee, pass through thy land. But the king of Eden would not hearken thereto, and in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent, and Israel abode in Kadesh. Then they went along, then they went along through the wilderness, encompassed the land of Edom, the land of Moab, and came by the east side of the land of Moab and pitched on the other side of Arnon and came not within the border of Moab. But Arnon was the border of Moab. Jephthah just basically stating the facts of what's happened here. We're told, And Israel sent messages unto Shion, king of the Amorites, and king of Heshbon. And Israel said unto him, Let us pass, we pray, through, uh, through, uh, pray thee through thy land into my place. So what he's saying is we ask permission if we could pass through. But with verse 20 says, But Shion trusted not uh, trusted not Israel to pass through his coast, but Shion gathered all his people together and pitched in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord, God of Israel, delivered Shion and all his people into the hand of Israel. And they smote there. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, of the inhabitants of that country. And they possessed all the coasts, of the, uh, the Amorites from Arnon, even unto Jabuk, from the wilderness, unto even unto Jordan. So basically, just given now this uh, historical lesson. Uh, again, we have a world that likes to try and rewrite history and so on. Well, anyway, we end up in a position of conflict uh, through this whole situation. Um, and Jephthah's been chosen now, although he was this outcast, he's been chosen to lead this uh, offensive. Uh, and we read of a, another vow. We're going to jump down to verse 30. Uh, and we read, And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord. Now, the only scripture they have at this point typically is the Torah. Okay? They don't have any of the other books. Samuel's not yet been written. Samuel as a judge hasn't yet come on the scene. Hannah's not yet gone up to Shiloh 
and all these kind of things. But he knows enough to vow, vow. He vows his vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail, uh, without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, and then this is a statement, this is his vow, then it shall be that whatsoever comes forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's. He's making a promise of dedication, just like Hannah makes that promise of dedication. Now, do we have a problem? Because it's translated here, and is the next word. And that's what causes some people a few problems. Now, the, in the Hebrew, it's a, a letter, there's two Hebrew letters, but it's a vav uh, is the letter there. It's, it's a, either used as a conjunctive, which could be and, or a disjunctive, which means or. So you can translate it either way, and it's not, there's no definitive. It depends upon the context as to how you would translate it. And the next line is, and I will offer it up to the Lord for a burnt offering. Now, a number of commentators go through the details of this, but the best, a better way of translating this is simply that when he comes back from this battle, if the Lord's granted him victory, whatever comes out of his house first shall surely be the Lord's, or he will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, some people go to the extreme of saying, oh, this man was about to you know, do child sacrifice or whatever because of what we're about to, to go on and see. Not the case at all. This is a godly man, and we see it a number of times come through. He makes this act of dedication, and we'll just go on and you'll see how this plays out. So Jethro passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands, and he smote them from a roar, even till thou come to a um, minute, even twenty cities, uh, and unto the plain of the vineyards with a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. And beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass that when he saw her, that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according that thou, which thou hast proceeded out of thy mouth, for as much as the Lord has taken vengeance from thee for thee on thine enemies, even on the children of Ammon. And she said unto her father, This thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to, uh, to his vow, which he had vowed. And she knew no man. And then we're told, key phrase, and it was a custom in Israel. What was a custom? This, I believe, is that starting point that Hannah then builds on, and we see elsewhere in the Old Testament, of somebody dedicating a child to the Lord for the rest of their life. Now, the condition, of course, is that she wasn't ever going to get married. And this is why she goes and spends those two months with her friends, lamenting the fact that she's not going to get this opportunity to marry. And yet, she's quite happy to go along with what her father has made a promise to God for. She recognizes that this is something that has been promised to God is the right thing to do. And I believe that what we see here, because we're told very specifically it was a custom in Israel. Now, to suggest, as some commentators will do, that Jephthah sacrificed her, that doesn't make sense, because that certainly didn't become a custom in Israel. 
But we do see evidence of people being dedicated to the Lord. How do we draw this to a close? Well, quite simply this, that Paul says in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, that even those who are married should be as though they are not married, in terms of our serving and our relationship to the Lord. You see, in the Old Testament, there are these individuals that were dedicated to the Lord for their entire lives. For us, surely each of us should willingly dedicate our lives to the Lord for as long as we live. And even if we are married, we should be as though we were not married, just as Jephthah's daughter here, in order that we may serve the Lord and give him all that we have. And that doesn't mean that we neglect our families. Of course not. Those things, the special precious things that God has entrusted to us, we serve him with and through those things as well. But it means that we put the concerns and the cares of the kingdom of God above everything else in our lives. This morning, hopefully, is an opportunity to reflect on our own personal walk with the Lord. We've had a couple of weeks looking at the fact that we are part of a body, that what we do affects the whole. This morning is an opportunity, and a great opportunity, to rededicate everything to the Lord. All that we are, all that we have, all of our possessions, including all of our worries and concerns and everything, let's just give it over to him. And then like Samuel, like Jephthah's daughter, just be faithful, acknowledging who God is, that God will never ask of us that which we cannot give. He will always give the strength that we need. And God is doing this wonderful working us to transform us into his likeness. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you this morning for the reminder of what dedication is. It is being given wholly over to you. Lord, it is just as in a marriage between a husband and a wife, where the husband gives to the wife all that he is, for better, for worse, and sickness and health. And Lord, the wife does the same. And they give themselves, commit themselves to each other. Well, Lord, your word speaks of the church as being your bride. So may we, Lord, commit ourselves to you in sickness or in health. Lord, for better or worse in the circumstances as we perceive them, but Lord, in your economy, it will always be for the better. Let us, Lord, give ourselves wholly unto you, unreservedly. Lord, just cause us to find time to read your word and to pray. Lord, this day is a special day for Tim and Kat and for Isla, for Nell and for Benjamin. And we pray your blessing upon them as a family. But may it also be a marker for us all as a fellowship that this day, the 22nd of April, 2018, a day where we drew a line in the sand and we said no more the things of this world, no more the things of the flesh, no more the things of the devil. But Lord, we run the race that's before us. Lord, in London this morning, there are people running a race to get a perishable crown. Lord, may we run to get an imperishable crown. Lord, running a race that has such a wonderful reward at the end. 
Lord, may we give all that we have, all that we are, wholly over to you, dedicated to you for the rest of our days, however long they may be, until the time that you return for us. We give ourselves to you this morning for your glory. And if you can pray that prayer, then say with me, Amen. May God richly bless you. Let's have some fellowship together over teas and coffees.